I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay. Today we are talking about V for Vendetta, the 2006 film written by the Wachowskis, based on the graphic novel by Alan Moore and David Lloyd. I'm joined by the Lessons from Screenplay team, Trisha Arand. Hello, everybody. Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Cayeros. Hi. So before we dive in, quick context announcement. We are recording this on October 27th of 2020. And if all goes according to plan, this is releasing November 5th. And I probably don't need to say any more than that. Just letting you know that this is, we are in the past from where you are, listener. So that's that's the context that we are saying all of these things in. The end. Uh, yeah. The end. Best of luck to you in your world. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck, future. Cool. So diving into V for Vendetta, I remember seeing this uh, in theaters and being really like hyped and pumped afterward. And as we'll talk mm-hmm. about, you know, this is a movie very much of its time. And I remember coming out feeling like a revolutionary and it's mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, we're going to stick it to, you know, the men of that <laughs> are the people that we are upset at. Uh, it was still kind of I was still young, so I didn't like have a super duper handle on all the politics of everything um you didn't know you know who you were mad at you yeah. were just mad at some right. people i just like, know i'm mad <laughs> right it felt kind of like a, a sequel in some ways to the matrix mm-hmm. like i think that's how my brain was kind of seeing it also and there's a lot of stylistic sequences that borrow heavily from the matrix and and that style it stood in my brain as this kind of weird kind of anomaly of a movie and and thinking about it in some ways it it also feels like children of men the Mm -hmm. action detective Mm -hmm. movie version Um, (laughs) real quick takes place in the same year as children of men so everyone in 2027 if you're listening to this get don't go to london <laughs> just yeah right get, but it came out, out in the same year as children mm-hmm. of men as well so right wow yeah, parallels yeah. are there yes and so definitely reacting to a lot of things that were were going on at the time but i remember loving it and watching it over and over again and there are some really fun sequences that are forever imprinted on my brain we were talking about collateral and if collateral is the origin story of a lot of michaelisms i feel like v for vendetta is the origin story of a lot of alexisms Mm. because i think (laughs) alex this movie is right up your alley so why don't you why don't you explain your first encounter with v for vendetta yeah is this why you're always walking around with knives (laughs) (laughs) always throwing them at people yeah (laughs) I thought it was weird. Turning on the tracers that all knives <laughs> have. Right. right. Yeah. My experience was similar to yours, Michael. I mean, I think I saw it. In, it was in college at UC Santa Cruz in the Bush era. Like, it was very resonant for me, you know. And, and right. I think I also came out of the theater feeling like that was like a, it was a special movie because it, it was so like subversive uh, mm-hmm. to, to, be, to be such a mainstream film, big budget. You know, written by the Wachowskis, like put out by Warner Brothers, and to have you know at the time I hadn't seen the movie with so many gay characters in it. They I mean yeah. they're not mm-hmm. even main characters, but just the fact that they were like all these supporting characters were gay. I was like, what this this can be in like a major studio film, and it's like about kind of like the persecution of LGBT people, and like what like they're the <laughs> they're the minority that's being persecuted. I didn't know you could do that in a in a big movie, mm. and just the fact that it you know it was you know, really kind of a radical story to be telling. It's like from the perspective of a terrorist during the war on terror, uh, I, I was just kind of blown away that they got away with it. And mm-hmm. and the fact that it ended up being such a just a good movie as far as the filmmaking and, 
yeah, Michael's right on as far as like, I think the, the Alexisms that come out of this film are just, you know, there's a feeling of almost like ecstatic momentum in like the third act of this (laughs) film where Mm -hmm. there's, you know, there's a lot of editing going on that is just really beautiful. Like there's this like, the dominoes yeah mm-hmm. just the weaving together of imagery from like mm-hmm. past present future like what's gonna happen what did happen like with that music with mm-hmm. every you know, it, it it's giving me that like cinemagasm that i'm always after you know like <laughs> this movie like delivered on that and so it gave me like the kind of like the swelling of emotions that like i go to to movie theaters for Mm. and and so that, that i was just so satisfied walking out because it it gave me more than i ever expected and at the same time was this like weirdly subversive bush era film mm-hmm. right it's it's the cinemagasm but like it means something also right like, it's not it wasn't just meaningless yeah. momentum for style it's also contributing to this really big idea that it's it's interfacing with yeah it's almost like montage the movie mm. in a lot of like <laughs> absolutely yeah. how it feels where it's like just it's constantly going and jumping and moving forward but it's always you're always with it it doesn't lose you yeah and, and yeah. that's a, a hard balance too i also feel like that's something i wish i saw more in film is like you can just cut in other footage than what the characters on screen are saying to each other if you want to communicate something to the audience with that. And if that just feels like film 101, like if you're making a short film or like a, you know, if you're watching like a French New Wave art film or something like that, it's like that's done all the time. And I feel like you so rarely see just something as simple as her going out in the rain and then, um, you know, as, as Evie going out in the rain and then cutting to V coming out of the fire. It's like, it's, I mean, it's a little on the nose, but like it's just, it's such a simple, thing you can do in film that film allows you to do that like a book doesn't for instance and that kind of thing and i just wish mm-hmm. i just wish like little subtle things like that were done more often that's the yeah. cinemagasm part you know it's mm-hmm. like it's like we're, <laughs> we're using the tools of cinema to juxtapose images and just like give you these like symbolic uh powerful moments and and yeah it, most films aren't taking place in this kind of heightened reality where you can get away with that. And so it's, it's really fun to see a film just embrace the heightened graphic novel kind of reality and just go all the way with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the movie plays almost more like an anthem than it does like a regular sure. sort of story, right? Straightforward story where there's a lot of characters actually and we're meant to sort of be following them all, but they're all sort of revolving around this... Um, theme or this revolution kind of idea the movie very explicitly tells you it's about an idea not about people uh-huh. <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. he's, a, it's, he's not a man he's an idea hey remember how he's an idea um you can't kill an idea uh and so <laughs> but the filmmaking reflects that right? right where it specifically isn't challenging you to sort of like place yourself as an individual in any one place in the movie, it's sort of allowing you to find yourself in all kinds of places um, and sort of, yeah, move you through this experience in not necessarily a linear way, which is really cool. Yeah. What's kind of like impressive about it is that it like everything you're just saying, but it feels like so like effortless or that it it mm. intended to do that. And mm. I feel like there are very few movies that can pull that off. And so it's I don't know. It's one of those movies that I, I watch and I'm like, I. Like, did you mean to do this this well? Because, mm-hmm. like, I don't know that you can intend to do it 
and have it work this well because <laughs> right. it, it is a little bit of that like lightning in a bottle thing where like so there there are many places and many decisions where things could have fallen apart and could have gone wrong and i think that that's what also impresses me about it. it's like you know the, the central character that it's all revolving around as you're saying trisha is an idea so we never see his face and that's a bold decision and it's not even different faces or some kind of mechanism where he's always in shadow like even in these emotional scenes where he's like you know experiencing a heartbreak or whatever it is he has this big goofy smile on his mask face and like that I don't know. There's just there's so many risks that were taken in it that I guess I'm kind of echoing what you were saying, Alex. That it's it's impressive that somehow they got away with it and managed to pull it off and achieve this thing that does feel like it's about the ideas more than the the people or even the mechanics of of the plot. Like that was a thought I right. I remember yeah. having when I saw it originally was I don't I'm not following everything a hundred percent and I don't super duper get what's happening. But I get what's happening, like the important stuff I'm I'm with. You're mm-hmm. carried through it, despite the fact that a lot of things don't make sense. Um, right. Because it kind of doesn't matter. Yeah, it's so highly visual. It's so cinematic that makes mm-hmm. you wonder. I mean, because I, I don't know if I've gotten to see the script, but it, it does make you wonder how much of it is on the page. But either way, it's so clearly like the graphic novel quality is being lifted into the film. But also the Wachowski's directorial eye is definitely being like reflected. You know, James McTeague directed this film and you know did a spectacular job, but you really get that cinematic quality from the filmmaking, which I assume was born directly out of the script. And of course, the Wachowskis also produced this. And so I think you, you see that sort of directorial eye stamped all right. over this. Well, and James McTeague probably directed a lot of sequences in the Matrix trilogy, you know, exactly. as as their assistant director. There's so much, so many like random action shots in uh, your Matrix Reloaded and Revolutions. I'm sure he had his hands on a lot of that. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. It's interesting to see that like he was assistant director on Dark City, then mm-hmm. the Matrix trilogy with Hugo Weaving, then episode two with uh, Attack of the Clones with Natalie Portman. And then it's like, and then what movie did you make with the Wachowski? Right. That, that would be it. <laughs> Um, exactly and yeah you know Alex you were talking about like getting away with this stuff in a um, in a sort of Hollywood blockbuster film and it's interesting because it because it feels like it's just barely that it's like yes it was Mm -hmm. released by Warner Brothers um, but it's like it's it was written by Americans but based on a graphic novel by you know Alan Moore who's English and then an Australian director and it takes place in London so it's sort of like it's like everything that Hollywood blockbusters are, and it just happened to actually be distributed by, you know, distributed and like funded and stuff by a studio. But it sort of felt like that it was it's like a backdoor blockbuster in a, in a weird sort of way. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing I wanted to mention real quick about sort of following all the intricacies of the different characters and stuff. I just find that like sports, politics and war movies like those three topics, I find when I'm watching them, sometimes I just my eyes start to glaze over and I'm mm-hmm. like, I don't remember who's who courtroom dramas can happen a little bit. But I think it's helpful when you're just in one room and are sort of like these people are over here. These people are over here. You can sort of like point <laughs> to where everyone is. Right. But I just find that like those and it's not it has nothing, nothing negative to do with the the writing or the directing. It's just I personally sometimes find that it's hard to to focus uh, and like remember and retain all the information and stuff. And I think that like maybe like a Tom Clancy or John Grisham like 90s thriller is kind of what the American version of like a V for Vendetta where it's like mm-hmm. we're going to deal with these politics, but also like 
people are going to run around and shoot each other too. So like, we're going to pull you back <laughs> into the action. So I think that I like anytime like V for Vendetta is sort of like a political action movie, which is a weird thing. Like Children of Men is political, but it's not a movie with like politics in it the way that something like V for Vendetta is, you know? So I think it like sort of helps pull me back into to the story when I'm like, I don't remember what those two characters who I just saw a scene about what they found, what they discovered, where they're going. But like, it's okay because I I don't need to follow every single detail to appreciate the bigger plot. I would venture to say this movie maybe tries to lose you on purpose mm. or, or at the very least, it doesn't concern itself with helping you stay oriented in the plot. It's actually really complex, the story, right? And it jumps all around in time where any other version of this movie would actually start something in a very similar way to Children of Men, where it would give you the backstory of the dystopian world mm -hmm. smack dab up front, where it would say like, you know, there was this virus, it killed this many people, then the government stepped in and they had a cure for it. And that's how the party leaders got elected. And that's how they've kept power all of this time. They would front load that and use it as a frame to help you stay oriented. And this doesn't do that. Mm -hmm. Like it does open with this rant by the Prothero character where he's talking about the United States and how, you know, there's that news broadcast and how like pathetic they are and we're not going to help them. That doesn't give you the St. Mary's virus and the like how right. much time has passed since then and like what's going on in the, the party and the government. And like it really mm -hmm. doesn't concern itself. And then it gives you that first Big Brother scene. Where you have that entire like curve. Yeah, curve. I absolutely love that right. set. It's really cool. It just Hold looks on. so amazing. <laughs> Can we appreciate that the Big Brother character is played by Winston Smith from the 1984 movie yes, from 1984? <laughs> John Hurt, yes. love you. Brilliant casting. Yeah, John Hurt is wonderful. Yes, well, but it gives you that that semicircle table of all of these middle aged white British men mm -hmm. who kind of are half in shadow and and look very similar, and they, we only hear their last names where it's like. Here's Finch. Here's Creedy. Here's mm -hmm. Stone. Here's Dascom. Here's like, <laughs> what? Like, right. how you're supposed to orient yourself to who each one of those guys, like, we don't meet them at their jobs first. We mm -hmm. just meet them seated at this table facing forward where they're all basically this, you know, faceless sort of, um, I was going to say jury, but that's kind of how they feel. I think the movie kind of tries to lose you where the oppressive government, again, it's not supposed to be about the characters in the same way that V is an idea. The oppressive government is also su supposed to be an idea, I think. And so I, I, it almost feels intentional to me, that sort of feeling that you get, Bri. And, and I've had too when I'm watching it like, wait, how many has he killed now? How many are there? Um, kind of trying to do that mental math. Mm -hmm. I don't think it reads just for me personally as like intentionally trying to like overcomplicate things. I think it is more of like, this movie isn't about tracking these things. You know, right. like this movie is not about we want you to have the list of like the revenge list and we're going to count it down with you. And like, you know, exactly like, you know, in Kill Bill, like who she has left. Sure, right. sure. Like it's, it's not even really about those details. It's about the larger ideas. And so I think like that first scene, you're right. Like I only know from watching it, you know, several times who everybody is in that first scene in the context of what they're saying in that first scene upon already having seen the movie like oh, i know that guy is from their broadcasting you know state broadcasting company i know that guy is the head inspector when you first watch the film that scene isn't meant to play as i know who these people are it's meant to play as like here is the situation with this government which is we have this you know crazy dictator 
in the right. big brother screen and here's all of his kind of like cronies yeah i do think that it's kind of like you were saying trisha th- that it is more they're not concerned about making sure you're tracking all of it yeah because because it is interesting watching it this time and it's the first time i've probably seen it in 10 years maybe and being older and also being familiar with it and being more interested in reading the details of the plot i was able to track everything much more clearly it's all there if you yeah. want to if you want to track it and i i I realized things that are kind of obvious in, in retrospect, but that my my, you know, how 18 year old brain or however old I was, wasn't really concerned with about the details of the St. Mary's virus. And, and I think tracking all the names because they are unfamiliar names of all these places and the times and this person changed their name to be this person. So she <laughs> is also the doctor that changed and, and now she was also <laughs> yep. built the virus. Happens, happens to be the coroner in this one scene. <laughs> yeah. Right. And like gave and and so I, I don't think it even put together that the drug they were trying gave V like kind of superhuman powers. Mm-hmm. Like I did not understand that at all. There's a little like side note of like he has like enhanced kin- kinetic abilities or something. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, Which I guess explains how he's alive during that final battle scene. Mm-hmm. So there, there were like all these little <laughs> details that I feel like should matter. But as we were talking about earlier, just the momentum and the way it, it keeps pounding home and drawing your attention to the theme and the main ideas, it, it lets you kind of breeze over what could in another movie be really big bumps and like trying to track all the things that are happening. Yeah. So one of the reasons that I really love being a part of Beyond the Screenplay is because we get to have a conversation about some of the movies that we really, really enjoy. And while I like talking to these guys about Black Panther and Stranger Things and Collateral and Moonrise Kingdom, I also would love to hear from all of you. It'd be nice to get some other voices in the mix here. So uh, if you've ever wanted (laughs) to have a conversation with us or you have thoughts about any of these movies, you can reach out to us on Twitter. We love to hear from you and we love to interact with listeners and get your opinions. You also can join us over on Patreon where we're having really cool conversations just on the Patreon page and also on our Discord, diving further into the things that we really love about film. So join the conversation, please. Get, get get some more opinions in Trisha here. Trisha is sick of us. <laughs> yeah. This is a cry for help. This is a cry for help. I know. <laughs> Do we need to be here for this? Or uh, you know, I just I just like hearing what people think. Lots of people. Other people. Other people. <laughs> we love you too, Trisha. <laughs> so see you guys on Twitter. <laughs> I think this movie does something really smart in the opening uh 10 minutes where V saves Evie in the alley, which is when he starts giving his little monologue about how he's a vociferous villain, you know, (laughs) whatever. Um, She does a little like look like a little like, huh? Kind of look when he's doing his thing. And then her line afterwards is, are you like a a crazy person? Um, And I, I really think that that little tiny moment gives us the ability to take a step back and be like, okay, like like this movie knows it's not trying to be like super damn serious. And like the movie doesn't think this hero is like the coolest guy we've ever seen in the world. And like, we're supposed to take him extra serious. Even when you get into like the sort of political back and forth and all the goings on between these characters, like we're talking about, it's sort of, it's all sort of giving you permission to be like, just hang out 
Like we're going to get there. <laughs> we're going to have like people throwing knives at each other's heads and things like that. Like anytime you feel like you don't have to, a movie's not taking itself as seriously as it could. I think it just lets you relax a little bit and just sort of appreciate it and take it in. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I don't know. I mean, especially if, if you can see that if they were going to take themselves seriously, it would not be working. Like, I think it, it signals, it right. lets you feel confident that the storytellers know right. the story that they're telling and how they're telling it. It goes back to, like you were saying about, you know, sit back, relax. There are going to be knives and guns <laughs> later. The thing I was struck by this time is how it, it does feel like this weird genre mashup. And I think that's partially mm-hmm. what felt subversive even to me at Mm -hmm. the time just as like a a filmmaker was like not understanding what the movie was because it it felt kind of marketed again like a big action matrix sequel and natalie portman and she shaved her hair everybody like it's this big event (laughs) like you gotta go see it but it's kind of it's and it's kind of like a superhero movie it's like it's a dc comic or whatever yeah it's like so you see you think it's a superhero yeah I don't think I ever thought about it as a superhero movie until afterward. And people were like, oh, yeah, it's one of the like the better superhero movies. And I was like, oh, yeah, I guess it is. But but not really. But it's not treated <laughs> like the way, you know, a Superman is. Right. And you get a little bit of that like action at the start. You get a little bit of that superhero stuff. But then it's like a detective thing for most of right. the movie. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so it is just interesting how it is constantly kind of shifting gears, but staying within this kind of barely cohesive bubble. And it, it's really cool. I think that's what makes it feel special and unique is that it is kind of balancing all these things in a, a really fun way. Yeah, I think I think partially because I, I would say Evie is the protagonist of this movie mm-hmm. that like how many superhero movies are there where the superhero isn't the main character, like the the right. the protagonist who like gets their power or whatever, or like you see them put on their mask and that kind of thing. So I think that's why you don't this doesn't come to mind when you're like, tell me about some superhero movies. You're not like V for Vendetta. That's one. And I also think the pacing does a lot of work to do kind of what we're talking about here, which is when you are with like two random people, then it's just like they're walking and they're having a conversation. They got to keep going. But then when you do slow down and have like a three, four, five minute scene, it's with Evie and V or one of the other or something like that. So it's like, well, now I don't want to, you know, I'm always like, when is the moment people will like get up and go refill their drink without pausing the movie because they forget you can pause a movie, you know? And it's like, you don't have those moments here because it's like when it does slow down, it's important character stuff. And when it's sort of side character exposition-y stuff, it's like, we're going to get in and out of the scene quickly. We're going to, you know, the characters are like mm-hmm. literally moving through the space as we're ta- as they're talking. So it's like, we don't, um, and I just think that's like, it's it just feels like a really nice, nicely paced movie for being two hours and 20 minutes. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Speaking of the, protagonist question it almost felt to me watching it this time more like a tv show and the way it treated Mm. its characters in the sense that it felt like an ensemble cast you know because there's times where like i'm really more with the the detective story and Mm -hmm. evie's just kind of like hanging out for a year you know in certain parts (laughs) of the movie you know like kind of waiting for the revolution to happen and so it's it's interesting because it it feels almost more like you know like something you'd see like on hbo like as a mini series where You've got multiple story threads with different characters that all are kind of interweaving and then come together at the end, you know, as these very much do, where the the inspector does end up with Natalie Portman in the final scene. So so I do agree that she's probably if you have to point to one person who has the the kind of core transformation and takes the final action of the Mm -hmm. film. It's clearly Natalie Portman's character. But I, I was struck by how kind of 
in the background she was for for long stretches of the film when she's just kind of hanging out. <laughs> like I, I feel like when watching it, I'm mostly rooting for Finch, like for the right. detective, yeah. because it's like yeah. you want him to put the puzzle pieces together because you want to know how all the puzzle pieces fit together. And he's a really likable character. Like you're really with him and like really like right. him, you know, because he's he's trying to, trying to do the right thing in this world where that's not. Uh, rewarded well and i was thinking too about that opening scene you know where they're all around the table and they do give him a moment to signal to you that he's like your guy mm-hmm. where he's talking about v and he's like you know he's very very good basically <laughs> and you know the the uh chancellor the high chancellor like smacks him down about like, that spare us like, your yeah, comments <laughs> leave your yeah opinions out of this but you instantly like him it makes it's like a really just light touch character intro moment where he stands out on that faceless panel of these all of these guys that essentially look the same and they're all lit the same and they're all very dour and whatever. And then he kind of is like, well, he's very good. And you immediately know that he's your guy. It's just it is good writing pretty much throughout. I was thinking to Bri about the the line from Natalie Portman there where she says, oh, you know, oh, are you a crazy person? Like mm-hmm. that's, it's pitch perfect. You have to nail it or none of this like holds together. There's nobody to like, you need that POV character. And I think it alternates here between Evie and Finch. And both of those character intros are like dead on perfect, in my opinion. Yeah. And that line also, I think, signals that there will be levity in this movie. Also, like there, mm-hmm. there, there are moments that are, that are funny. And I remember being in the theater and there being certain laugh moments. And I think, you know, the Stephen Fry character and his kind of subversive show that he puts on Mm -hmm. making fun of the chancellor. Like, I I feel like there are these moments where you can relax and see that these are people that enjoy being alive, which is, you know, the the last one we go back to is like, see everybody smile at least once, ideally, in a movie. So Uh you're not just depressed the whole time. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so I feel like there are moments like that that let us connect to these people as people and i think that starts with for me anyway with that line with natalie portman where it's like okay we're gonna like make some jokes and cracks a little bit throughout this movie and i think that that's what keeps it fun and not just super serious Mm -hmm. you know depressing vision of the future well well, and v as a character v like he he's vaudevillian like he he enjoys Mm -hmm. like literature and uh quoting shakespeare and he's kind of this theatrical guy which is part of his charm and part of the fun is when he's about to you know assassinate somebody he's enjoying the wordplay of his like final words to them before (laughs) you know (laughs) giving them poison or whatever he's fencing a suit of armor by himself for fun (laughs) and then like and like acting the part where he like grabs the guy's like he grabs the armor's like arm and pretends to choke himself with it so he can like shove it off. Right. It's like right. you're doing a play for yourself for your own amusement. Right. Yeah, and I do think like you have the expression on his mask, you have his politeness, you have the mm-hmm. whole style of his place, his love of like old timey things, Count of Monte Cristo and the music and everything. And it's like, I mean, he's still a murderer and a kidnapper, but it's kind of this kind of thing of like if you're going to have a sympathetic lead be those things then like you kind of need to go out of your way to make him endearing and feel like as non-threatening 
as possible to the people he doesn't want to be threatening to basically well and, and again i think it, it reminds us that like he's a person and that these are people mm-hmm. or at least that, that's what it does for me is that it creates you know and, and this is an, another thing that i i've always really liked about the film is that we have these kind of little vignette or i don't know what the best word is but these these uh families and people yeah. that we check back in with mm. throughout the film of like the family watching the tv or the people in the pub watching the tv it's really effective it's so simple it and kind of like it kind of bothered me actually on the first viewing but i i it it, it you need it like it's so effective and it's so it's such, such a great payoff at the end of the film when all those places we've been checking in on are empty because everybody's mm, finally they right. finally mm-hmm. stopped watching the television they're out in the streets you right. know mm-hmm. it reminds uh, me a lot of the truman show where you mm-hmm. have yes. like the different mm-hmm. groups of people yeah. watching on tv yeah i mean it's a kind of like even like the bill and ted movies do this or whatever like the sort of mm-hmm. the, like and i think like anchorman does it's like the the guys in the bar and then like the family at home you know it's just sort of like checking back in on them and seeing how they react to stuff and like it's it's almost like a a tropey comedy uh mechanic but like it works like just just quickly tell me how people feel about what's happening like done well and it shows like that it's what what these characters are doing are going to affect these people and and exactly yeah yeah there's a bad way to do it but i think it it works it lets it not just be about these kind of ideas or about this you know his specific action of he's a terrorist so i get to decide if he's bad or if he's good it's like there's those moral high concept questions. And then there's also we're getting to see the people that are affected by, you know, the decisions made by those in power. And so I, I think it invites you to consider many different levels of what's going on and, and adds like a, a complexity to the, the discourse that the film is having. Mm-hmm. Well, and if you're going to have a film that is thematically engaging with questions of power and essentially the relationship of the people in power with those that they govern, right? Or rule. If you're, if you are talking about that relationship, then you better have some of the average people in your movie. You just have to have them. And, and a wide cross-section is best if you could manage to figure it out. So whether that is in like a, you know, riot scene or just a large scene of of large scale protest, which we do have at the end here. But it's smart to have this like, you know, something of a cross section to check in on throughout because that's where the battleground of the revolution is being fought. It's being right. fought in between the screen and the people watching it. I've read examples of scripts that are about like, kings or queens or like other quote-unquote people in power and it's like we meet like one commoner in the thing and and you know it's usually like a mom with a baby and they're like oh we'll help you or we won't help you and that's how you know if they're good or bad (laughs) (laughs) but like this is a really smart way to go about it because it demonstrates a fundamental understanding of the like sort of core question of the movie and then again to have them all leave their comfortable places um where we are comfortable seeing them where they are comfortable sitting by the end of the movie seeing them out in the streets and then seeing them unmasked you know seeing everybody's faces beneath the masks Mm -hmm. right it is just really good it's it's relatively simple device but used to incredible effect here Mm -hmm. right and also seeing people who are dead take off their masks you know i love that 
that mm. always gives me like chills at the end right. of the song because mm. right. the way with the music swelling and like just the rapid cutting of all the different faces coming out and like the glasses yeah. girl yeah mm-hmm. what a smart payoff there too of like yep. to have her be one of the tv viewers and then to have her right. be one of the like instigations of you know violence mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that was the one thing i was just going to add is that yeah it's not just that we're going back to those people occasionally but they they have an arc which is right. kind of what you were saying right so like they are contributing to the changing uh story and so it's it's doing multiple things at once which is why it's extra powerful i think mm-hmm. and yeah just having people you know who are dead on screen like it's one of the simple things like i was saying earlier where you can just you can do filmy things without yeah. confusing your nobody's like oh my god they're all alive it's like no it's like i also don't think like v set up a bunch of dominoes really like it's just it's the movie <laughs> doing a movie thing and that's but then there's fine. a literal domino later <laughs> he is he is theatrical and he does fight <laughs> right. suits of armor by himself so. i guess i guess my point is i don't care whether the movie is telling right. me he literally right. set up a bunch of dominoes or the movie is just doing an artsy thing because again i don't think those things have to be separated just like at the end when we have you know Stephen fry taking off his mask and glasses girl and the uh, the couple valerie and, and her partner yeah well it's prioritizing the image right rather than <laughs> like the the logical or like the logistical mechanics of it so i was thinking about the image of the body of v you know lying in the in the, the train. train yeah exactly yeah. with mm-hmm. all the roses around it and like no one wants to see Evie like drag his body over uh-huh. there and go and <laughs> right. get the roses <laughs> I and, had like, that play too. them all out perfectly like around his face but, again right. we're prioritizing what is the image here that is going to be like poetic and express the thing that we're trying to do and that is where this movie like just succeeds incredibly again with the symbol that like this movie trades in symbols yeah everything like everything is iconic in this film like oh yeah that's why it it moves me on this like almost more like subconscious level because i'm not i'm not necessarily moved because of the scene where she you know drags his body and puts the roses around it i'm moved by the image of v you know being sent off in the train you know and who cares how he got there that's not the point it's poetry exactly rather than prose in a lot of ways it's about what it means, not mm-hmm. like what happened and how it happened. Right. right. But it is also tricky if it's distracting you, you know, if it's Dark Knight Rises and it's like, when did he have time to go paint the bat symbol on a building? He's in mm-hmm. a, a, a rush, right. you know. So I think it's it's <laughs> sort of like you have to find that that line where it's like, you know, like V could have set up those dominoes a week ago or something. You know what I mean? You don't need to be like, well, between 1130 and midnight, he like went and did this complicated <laughs> thing. It's like, right. as long as you don't, as long as you're sort of poetry doesn't rely on or doesn't interfere with some sort of like logical narrative thing then i think it's fine yeah yeah yeah. right right it has to be in step with the sort of filmic world that you're creating and i think dark knight rises is a great example of you know i think some movies want to be able to do that and want to be able to trade and just images and like what it means but we also have this kind of need to fulfill that logical thing and so Mm -hmm. if you set the precedent that everything's going to be logical and makes sense and i feel like the dark knight movies are very much like we are serious and this is a real gritty like blah 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 that then when you try to jump and do just you know symbolic imagery it it has that cognitive dissonance like you're talking about right it's, it's almost like dark knight rises wanted to be v for vendetta as far uh-huh. as like like the things it was aiming <laughs> totally. for are kind of like be- they belong in like a heightened reality movie you know it's like mm-hmm. right. he's now in some foreign country like in like 
the coolest looking pit of a prison ever. <laughs> uh, like, like that's just that's just what's happening now. Um, or yeah, like he's he came back, but he had time to like burn his symbol onto the bridge. Like that movie was aiming for these things, but then also got so mired in details that like aren't fun. You know, it's like right. mired in like the convoluted uh, plans of the outside world trying to like sneak in special agents to infiltrate the city that then get killed and like who was that guy and right yeah none of that matters <laughs> yeah it's i mean dark knight rises uh is shackled almost by its genre requirements where it's like we have to be and of course by its prequels or the movies that came before it i guess it is a sequel but it has to check all these boxes of there have to be like batman has to do this cool thing and this cool thing and this cool thing and there's a batmobile and there's like there has to be you know catwoman you know a nuclear threat and Catwoman and like yeah all of this different stuff where v for vendetta because it is a thriller let's go with that right like sort of a catch-all genre word that that encompasses some of most of what v for vendetta is doing and it's again like engaging with something that is graphic by nature right it is visual by nature graphic by nature it doesn't really have to do the logical things that the Dark Knight Rises kind of has to do, which is nobody's fault. It just kind of is what it is. Right. But I also think like the equivalent here is like if when Parliament blows up, we see V's body is like on the steps with roses on him. And we're like, wait, she dragged him a mile. Like that's different than being like she had (laughs) to move him from the ground to the thing, you know, it stays within like a range. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah non-distracting yes. unbelievability suspension of disbelief yeah it's sort of built into the text of the movie also because yeah. a, a thing that gets said multiple times is you know artists use lies to exactly. tell the truth mm-hmm. and so part of this you know i think is a little bit of a love letter to what art and film and storytelling can do yep and so i think that helps put you in that mindset where it's like this isn't true like we're right. not this isn't trying to be a true story. This is artists using lies to tell the truth. And I think the film really does succeed in that as as we're talking about where you're not concerned with the logistics of what happened, but you're concerned with what it means. And I think that's one of its triumphs. Absolutely. And I think in addition to all of the iconography that we've sort of already talked about, the film explicitly does this with narrative and like even narrative in microcosm. So Count of Monte Cristo is, you know, referenced a couple of times here where it's a very well-known story, but it's a story. It's a story about Edmond Dantes and like what he does to enact revenge. He's obviously a parallel for V, but also the narrative has tremendous power and has shaped V into who he is in the same way that the narrative that he finds written on that scrap of paper by Valerie transforms him and Mm -hmm. in you know eventually transforms evie it's a story she Mm -hmm. wrote down a story and that story went on and lived on past her in the same way that all stories are capable of doing and so again the movie does takes care to hang a lantern on that fact of saying look we are telling a story about storytelling in some ways and how things like revolution need narrative symbols slogans Mm -hmm. they need images they need ideas in order to feed them that is what you know that is what has lasting power because you can kill a man but you can't kill an idea (laughs) (laughs) 
Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Speaking of kind of just like how this film itself functioned as a revolutionary narrative at yeah. the time, watching it again, I was just struck by just how how much fun it has like satirizing fascism. And, oh, and yeah. Like, mm. And th- this, you know, just like right wing authoritarianism like it has it has a kind of a delicious satirical quality to it with just the outrageousness of the kind of Rush Limbaugh style you know newscaster host whatever their names are the nose the eye the <laughs> mouth and the finger and the police are called the fingermen the fingermen is that why they're called the fingermen <laughs> I did not pick up on that yeah the okay. different like ministers of the different departments that's like so so Finch is called the nose. <laughs> and mm-hmm. then I didn't know this. Prothero is called the mouth because he's the voice of London. And right. then the voice of London, yeah. I assume it's all straight out of the comic book, but it's goofy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. goofy. Yeah. <laughs> They're really good satirical characters. Like they 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 embody mm. like they embody a critique of you know this kind of these these patterns that show up in authoritarian regimes the film itself was commenting on politics of the time still relevant today and i i think it remains a really kind of important satire of fascism and of authoritarian politics and i really love the scene where you're talking about sort of like the fun of satire and the the scene where they they do make fun of the chancellor where they're like we're going to do a comedy sketch to make fun of the chancellor, you know, which is another thing that we know from the history of revolutions, which is that comedy is a powerful tool to skewer people in power, remind us that they are ridiculous. And it helps make us less afraid of dictators and things like that. That brings up something I wanted to talk about, which is Stephen Fry's character, Dietrich, um, who I love Stephen Fry and I know a lot about him. Mm-hmm. And he is gay and was born into a Jewish family. So obviously his character is sort of a reflection of his own experiences. Mm-hmm. Very different character in the book. Uh, so it was actually Stephen Fry who decided he wanted to take this character and kind of shape it to be a little bit more autobiographical. Uh, mm. Whereas, you know, about the sort of violent, um, you know, authoritarianism and stuff. And then to have his character be a gay character who can't be honest about that, who feels like, you know, he'll be persecuted if he is open, but then can use his platform and comedy, as you were saying, to to make a statement and to to do these big things that could be more effective uh, on a on a global scale. Just like this movie, just like the concept of V, like things that could be more effective on a global scale than just coming out and saying like, I, you know, I am this person or I feel this way or whatever. And I just think I just think it's really cool that he was able to do that because that's what he does with his platform that he has in real life is to use his his personality to to do these things. And it ties in again to that theme of, you know, artists using lies to tell the truth and all, and mm-hmm. all the different forms. And so, yeah, that it's cool that it, they also talk about, as we're saying, comedy and and art can be many different things. And uh, 
yeah, just the importance of that as a weapon. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot that I like about uh, this version of the character of Dietrich. When she's with Dietrich, I feel like is the the time that I relax in the movie. I kind of have some problems here with the the love story between Evie and V. Sure. And yeah. what we have is we know that V is not a good guy. He murders a lot of people in this. Um, but ultimately, he's striking out against oppression and fascism. And the people he murders are like essentially Nazis that were working at concentration camps. And we're kind of like, OK, we're on board with this. I think where it gets really tricky is when it's revealed that he is the one who kidnaps Evie mm-hmm. and tortures her. And breaks her, essentially, in order to revolutionize her. It's also the second time he's kidnapped her in the movie. (laughs) Honestly, yeah. So I'm anti-kidnapping and anti-torture of all people, but (laughs) especially women Mm -hmm. at the hands of men. uh, And especially in cases like this, which is, to me, very Phantom of the Opera, and then becomes a love story. I just think that there is something troubling at the heart of this where her horror at discovering that it is him is something that the movie moves past that I'm not so sure that I definitely know I wasn't able to move past the first time I saw it. I'm a little bit able to move past it now because I kind of can see the bigger picture of what the film is doing. But it is a situation in which V is acting like a person and not like an idea. He's taking very specific actions within the context of a relationship that is already established. And I just find it troubling. Yeah, I mean, when a character does something, you know, that's not the writer saying anything necessarily but when a character does something and then another character is pretty much cool with it then that starts to feel like it's the writer being like this was a perfectly fine thing to do yes and there's there's just a very interesting and of course it is very complex because you know what v does to her is what was done to him it wasn't like torture that he made up or invented out of his head sure um to get the result it was something that Actually, watching it this time, I like had forgotten that twist because so I haven't I hadn't seen this movie uh, since it came out. I saw it in theaters and hadn't watched it until yesterday. Um, and so there was a plenty of it that I in no way remembered. Uh, and so I was like, oh yeah, she gets snatched by the bad guys. They shave her hair off and then they like break her spirit. But I'm pretty sure V comes to rescue her and then like it's totally fine at the end. And then as it, it went along. I was like, hang on. I remember something's up with this and I don't like it. <laughs> and then you see the dummy, like the dummy oh, soldier. It makes right. me so angry. Yeah. The movie definitely lies to you also. Like it, it's clearly yes. Creedy's silhouette oh, from yeah. her perspective. Yeah. When like, her hair is being shaved, it's like there's a clear like latex glove on a hand and it's not, not his it, hand it's not a burned mm. hand like mm. right like that's not okay <laughs> well, yeah and the movie the movie lies to you in a way that does become logically sort of sticky because when you're being held captive by people so they've got they're all backlit okay <laughs> right so that's right. how she never sees their faces <laughs> right sure the backlight is very strong in this prison but even so you would notice you would notice that the guard never moved or that there was never another guard at the end of your hallway You would notice like the different profiles and voices of your captors, because especially if that's all the information you have to go on, it logically sort of doesn't hold together that one person could do this. Also, he just has that hallway built into his (laughs) like weird tunnel. It it strains (laughs) credulity in a way that 
draws attention to itself. Trisha, it's poetry. It's not. Uh, <laughs> no, I agree. <laughs> the first time I saw the film, it definitely like broke my brain a little bit because it did seem to cross a line. It you know, does. Be- beyond the normal like boundaries of like yeah, the poetry of the film. It's like this is asking you to believe in a very specific circumstance that is like very hard to believe. This is not just like poetic imagery. This is like she was literally kidnapped and put in a replica of the prison he was imprisoned in and all these things happen. Which again, how long were you planning this, dude? Right. Like, it's, <laughs> it's very specific. It's right. not uh, it's not like a broad idea. I do appreciate that Natalie Portman's performance transforms when she transforms. Like it's a really just the way she yeah. holds herself and everything. Which you know, you find sometimes when you're like when you shave your head or when you like put on a certain outfit or something like that, you're like I feel different now, but like you see a subtle but noticeable change in just how she carries herself for the last 30 minutes of the movie. I think the part that I just really can't uh, get on board with, like I can kind of buy the rest of it for thematic reasons and just like, okay, we need to, we need to, um, you know, radicalize her as a character. So she will throw the switch at the end and blow up Mm -hmm. the building. Like I kind of get it, but I don't think it needs to be a love story. And I don't think it should be a love story. I think it undercuts so much of her agency and, Gosh, I really hate the way that they like put her in a skirt at the end. Mm. There's so much that I just <laughs> and like when she kisses the mask, it just it blurs the lines of is this about a revolution or is this about a love story? And if it's about a revolution, make it about that and own it. She has every reason to get radicalized that doesn't need to entangle her romantically with V. The government killed her parents. The virus killed her brother. And then she finds this beautiful story by this pr- previous prisoner named Valerie, you know, sort of that teaches her this lesson about not being broken and like owning who you are and and like holding tight to the part, your faith and your hope that no, you know, that torture can't take away from you. Let it be about that. Why muddy it by making it a love story? And that makes these actions way more problematic they're already problematic but it just makes them a thousand times worse (sighs) i i did think there there could be a really interesting version of this film that like still has v do everything that he does but like you're like you're pointing out why does she need to kiss him at the end like why can't it be you know you like your actions changed me i can never forgive you for what you did to me but i have i have changed and i am like, I have no fear anymore, thanks to you, whether I think it was right that you did it to me or not. And, 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 not, and not have it be a love relationship, but a, like, just a more uneasy, ambiguous relationship of, like, we are revolutionary partners by the end, but I, I will never forgive you for, like, literally putting me through what you were put through by the fascist regime. What I wouldn't give for that version of this movie. That'd be a really interesting version. Yeah. I feel like the movie almost does it. I feel like almost, it is yeah. in that, that last interaction with them. Cause I feel like even during the dance, she has a little bit of like, you know, I'm, you know, she makes a comment of like, I guess you, I, I guess you really like changed me. Cause her friend didn't even recognize her or something. She has mm-hmm. a comment that almost sounds kind of bitter where she's like, Right. The old me is gone, you know, entirely because of you. Yeah. Um, And I I think it's all believable until like the train and all the things that 
you're talking about Trisha where the kiss and she's like, wait, don't do it. Like we can leave together. And that's when it's like, no, 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 no. (laughs) Like her character just changed all of a sudden so that there can be a like, please don't go scene. Cause I feel like that's where it really, really bothered me. I think it is cool and complex. Just her arc and what he does to her is really fascinating. And it does, you know, it's, it's an example of what we, you know, the opposite of what we were saying earlier, where sometimes the movie can just be about what it means and not about the logistics. And as you guys were talking about, the complexity of lo- the logistics required for him <laughs> to do all this to her is like the example of what not to do. But I feel like it kind of works because the Valerie montage is so powerful and yeah, the transformation so is good. so powerful. And I remember not really liking it or Evie's transformation not really clicking for me when I first saw it. And I think this time, because I'm older and much more cynical, it really clicked, actually. Mm. And I, I think the the one, not saving grace, like it's completely bad what he does to her. But I think the one thing that he says that interests me anyway, is that, you know, he's saying like, every day, it was so hard for me to do this to you, blah, blah, blah. But then when he says like, but every time you didn't give in, mm-hmm. like it felt, like I couldn't stop. And I feel like that's at least speaking to her power and her will. And I think that that sequence is about that. And in in a very literal way is, is showing like kind of only when we're pushed to our limits, do we realize what we're willing to die for. And for some reason that just like really hit me this time is like seeing her go all the way there was really powerful. And like, I, I got it. Yeah. The interesting thing about the film is that you do need you need her to be put in a situation that pushes her to exactly this point for the film to work. And it's just this interesting thing from, I think, the source material that it's V himself who does it to her. Mm-hmm. And I think once again, that's a really interesting choice, very complex, kind of dark choice to make to have it be at his hands that she is pushed to that brink. Is that ethical or not? Is that right? And I think, yeah, there is a more interesting version of their character arc that keeps it complex to the end and doesn't let it be a simple love story at the end. Right. And doesn't completely undercut it and rob it at the end. One of the things I love about the end of that sequence when she does, like, realize that she's, like, in the Matrix, basically. You know, there's kind of that, like, almost Matrix (laughs) twist of, like, none of that was real. Mm -hmm. Um, How she almost, she looks like a monk. You know, she's dressed in this, like, very simple, almost, like, orange... Mm-hmm. like sack sack she her head is shaved and it there is a, that's where i really feel the wachowski's presence is like they are almost making this commentary of like you really can't be free until you've like lost everything you've right, lost yeah. you're, you're stripped down to this almost like monk like existence yeah, aesthetic, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah and then she has a moment in the rain where she kind of just like is reborn essentially and and i think that is very powerful once again iconic almost like mythic imagery in this film of like the person reduced to nothing finds their power after they because they have nothing left to lose. They have nothing left to fear. They're okay with dying. And from that place, they can now actually be the revolutionary. Um, so I love all of that it does. And I think, I think I agree with you, Trisha, that it's just very weird that it gets so simplified by the end. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And all of this goes into my lesson, which is a resounding yes to everything you just said, Alex. But I want to return to the choice of costume for her a little bit later. And I don't know if this is a screenwriting lesson or if this is just a filmmaking lesson for me, but I really really disagree with the choice of her costume later in the movie in the last scene she's wearing this like sweater basically it's like a cardigan that has a low v in the front and in the back it's a very cute cardigan i kind of wish i had it um and then she's wearing a skirt and a pair of flats and then she has a like a military style jacket that goes over it mm. But it's very similar in a lot of ways to the kind of costuming we see her in at the beginning of the movie. She's like sort of feminine. She's got long curly hair. And when we see her like working at her, her job at the television station, she, in a pair of flats, in a skirt kind of thing. It's so similar to how we see her dressed at the beginning of the movie that it doesn't do a good job of signaling her transformation. The shaved head is awesome. It's a really striking visual look. And of course, it was the one that everybody made a big deal about when Natalie Portman actually let them shave her head on camera. But these small signals, these character signals mean something. And if you were imprisoned in a cell with an orange sack over you and presumably very little just like clothing to speak of, you know, to protect you against the cold and against the torture. Would you ever wear a skirt again? I don't know. I don't think so. And there's just, to me, almost a lack of thoughtfulness. I'm sure that it isn't true. I'm sure it was very deliberately thought through. But I don't, I think it undercuts. It goes into this like very feminine sexualization of their relationship that undercuts the revolutionary quality to it. The marvelous thing about V's costume is that it is gender neutral. And we see men and women in the cape and mask dressed at the end. That is a revolutionary symbol. Like all of the other images in this movie, the costume is a symbol. You had a chance to put Natalie Portman's character in something revolutionary and potentially gender neutral, and you you didn't do it here. And I, I get why. Because you're making it a love story, but I just... Is it because they dance, basically? So they can have a dance scene? <laughs> may, I mean, maybe, but <laughs> it just... It's so impractical for what she's doing, and she, like, knows that she's going there. It's like the day of the revolution. You don't wear a skirt on the day of the revolution! It just <laughs> I would. <laughs> Hell no, Brian. you don't. It just... Th those details matter. You have to think through everything. And, and maybe this was perfectly thought through and chosen. And I want to trust that it was. It's not the choice that I would have made. But th my lesson here is that, you know, as a filmmaker, every single thing that's on screen on like that your character wears on their body matters. And no one should be more aware of that than V for Vendetta as a as a film. Um, and I hate that skirt. 
even mm. though she looks very, very cute in it. <laughs> I, I would certainly worry that the other end of the spectrum would also be scary or, or uh, dangerous, which is basically turning her from a feminine character into a masculine character. To like, as, as, of... as if the only way to express revolutionary like energy is through like a masculine. You already right. cut off her hair, which is already a movie cliche for like something right. traumatic <laughs> has happened to a woman. Now she has no hair. But that's my point: is that like, is that maybe what their intention was was to be like, like we're giving her this transformation, but we still want to to call attention to the fact that she's a woman and not the fact and not be like, look, we like took away her femininity and now she's a revolutionary kind of thing. I think that there's a, I think what I agree with you, there's a balance between those two extremes, which is maybe just the gender neutral thing. But I'm, but I'm wondering if maybe their choice was if we, if we don't include any femininity in her, then what does that sound like we're saying about like the only way she can be free is to sort of take away all these feminine things about her? I don't hate the sweater. <laughs> there's probably pants. there's probably a middle give her yeah. give her pants for the love of god those right. are gender neutral you can she can have them sure regardless of, of how you read that i think the point you're making stands where yeah what these what your characters matter. right these details matter definitely and especially in a movie that is hanging so much on visuals yes and all that stuff like it matters so pay attention to that yeah yeah i agree awesome alex how about you uh we really covered mine right at the opening but a lot of it is just the lesson it took away as an editor of, you know, not thinking so linearly about how to cut together sequences, you know, because I think some of my favorite scenes in this movie aren't even really scenes. They're they're just kind of like extended montages. Um, and it kind of reminded me of a lot of the stuff we talked about with the Christopher Nolan crosscut, where you have, you know, this this feeling of momentum that is like more than the sum of its parts. Like you, you may not even follow exactly what's happening in the different threads, but they're all adding up to something bigger. And, and I think a lot of times when I'm writing or editing a scene uh, in a narrative, the first just place you go to is like, oh, this scene like begins. And so we have to kind of establish like, why are they here in this room? And like, where do they just come from? And there's a whole scene that has to happen here. Then they have to like end the scene and leave. And this movie does not concern itself no. with that. Like we just <laughs> drop into things, stay there for a few moments with the detective or whatever, and then get right out. And we're not, it's not concerned with like even locating us in time. Like I actually, mm-hmm. I, I feel pretty unmoored as far as like where in the year we are. Cause this, this kind of like a year yeah. that this film takes place in. And I have no idea like where we are most of the time. Mm-hmm. So that's maybe not actually like a good thing, but, in general, the film doesn't concern itself with these first thought, you know, writing and editing just tropes that I think I I fall back on where, where you think like, oh, we have to like establish this thing. We have to, you know, kind of every scene has to be this whole complete bubble. And this film shows that no scenes can really be just moments that are adding up to this bigger just kind of train that's leaving the station and just get on board and mm-hmm. and and it's okay to also like you know in a film like this that's working with iconography um to have a non-linearity in in what you're portraying like i love that when finch is kind of kind of giving his speech to his partner about the feeling he has about what's going to happen oh it's so good it just you know mm-hmm. it, it, it you see past present and fu- future all together mm-hmm. and, it, and it's just so it's so beautifully <laughs> cut together there's such confidence in the way it's cut together so mm-hmm. uh i'm not sure what specific lesson there is there but uh 
good editing. (laughs) Good job. Well, and and I wanted, well, there are two things. During that montage, there's like a quick frame, I think, of the future where Natalie Portman is with Finch in a house. And that also has always like freaked me out a little bit because it feels Hmm. like it's a little bit saying like, and then they end up together and they're like happily ever after. Um, That's interesting. I never noticed that. He's probably going to bake her, make her a piece of toast with an egg in the middle. (laughs) (laughs) And say bonjour, mademoiselle. (laughs) I would love to know how much of that was uh, intentional from the beginning. Right. I think part of the magic of this movie and why it it seems like a movie you couldn't, you couldn't make this version of it intentionally starting from zero is that I could also see this kind of crazy editing coming from a, a problem of like the pacing Mm. isn't working or like some things aren't getting across. And sometimes when you're, painted into a corner that's when you throw all the rules out the window like, and you what if we just do something. this yeah right <laughs> and so a lot of the movie feels that way to me mm. where it was like these things came from necessity and by doing so they unlocked this kind of magic uh toolbox that worked really well for for this movie and it kind of goes into my lesson which i'll kind of just add in really quick is that it, i think it, it works because the theme is being explored in so many different ways all the time. I think that's where, you know, as you were saying, Alex, I don't know when I am in the year. I don't know that I even really realized that a year was supposed to have gone by between the two November 5th. But like, of course, that's what would have (laughs) had to happen. Um, And like not clocking all the plot details. I don't think I even really understood that Natalie Portman was supposed to be British when I watched it the first time. (laughs) Right. That's fair. She doesn't sound that British. (laughs) (laughs) Right. God bless her. So there's lots of things (laughs) that are uh, confusing. But as we've said multiple times, I think the... The thematic questions that are being explored are ever present and explored in different ways and on multiple levels at at once. So it's not like it's just beating you over the head with the same idea over and over again. It's you're getting to see artists use lies to tell the truth in many different ways. We're looking mm-hmm. at old movies or mm-hmm. we're looking at, um, again, the Stephen Fry character. You know, she says, is everything a joke to you? And he says, only the things that matter. I'm like, that's yeah. such mm-hmm. a cool. So like, there's lots of examples of all of it. And it's even if the plot kind of gets lost by the wayside, the dedication to really exploring the important ideas and making them progress in a satisfying way. I think like that's, I don't know. I I think that's the thing that works in this movie and makes everything else uh, click and and Mm. support it. So yeah. Anyway, I I think it's it's a cool, it's a cool way to keep the theme ever present and uh, manifest it in lots of different ways. On that note, like I was researching kind of the backstory of the script for the film and the Wachowskis actually wrote the first draft in the 90s before The Matrix. Mm, um, interesting. So, so and I and I feel like it feels like a return to the first Matrix for me, you know, as far mm. as it being a, a script that is just so chock full of ideas. Like you, I just feel like for sure. they're, they're just it's mm-hmm. just bursting with so much they want to get out and put into one movie, which is how the first Matrix film feels to me as well, where it's just like, theme and ideas are so packed into every scene of the matrix and this feels like a sister kind of companion piece in a different genre 
Mm-hmm. You know, I think the the montage about Valerie, as we were talking about, is a cool yeah. example of like what other movie makes like a short film in the middle yeah. of it, yeah. <laughs> like about I this other it. thing, right? And but it, like it works, it ties into what's the main thing that's happening, but it's letting you explore this theme in a whole other like mini movie, basically. Mm-hmm. Also, I think that's really cool. The music by Dario Marianelli does so yes. much work in this movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's such a yes. beautiful soundtrack, especially yeah. in that Valerie montage. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely, Brian. Take us home. What's your lesson? My lesson is to wear a mask. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what a good lesson. <laughs> Hashtag 2020. Okay. Yep. Um, now, uh, disclaimer for this that like totally agree with everything Trisha said about like when your character does things like kidnapping someone and you know, that is torturing them. Yeah. Like <laughs> not cool. And like, that's not good. A statement. Not good. Um, so I just want to make sure that that is stated before I get into my lesson, which is that I do really like when creators are ballsy enough to take their characters to the extreme edge of whatever their belief system is. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, basically just because a character in your movie does something doesn't mean this is a message you are trying to send out. It means that you're using an artistic medium to explore a theme. Taxi Driver, Clockwork Orange, Natural Born Killers, American Psycho, Boondock Saints, Monster, V for Vendetta, Parasite. Like these are all movies that make bad behavior fun to watch. And in some cases, the might, the creator might agree with their, the value system of these characters, even if they don't agree with like the extent to which they're taking it. And in a lot of cases, at least half of those movies I mentioned, like we're not supposed to agree with the characters. They're mm. either being used as satire or the point is that the theme is embedded in how other characters are reacting to them. Things like that. Right. Like, And I think that V is an interesting blend of those things. He's actually tame compared to the book where it's like to what extent are we supposed to be on his side we're like okay i agree with this thing but like and then maybe with this big thing that you do at the end but not with how you what you do to even you know sort of like but like i also my point is i appreciate that they that they can make his character be complicated and i also think it's it's strong to have evie be the protagonist and that's why i see her as the protagonist is because how she processes everything is more in line with how we as the audience might process what v is doing but then that lets v be more of an extreme character than he could be if we were supposed to if he was our only main character if he was the protagonist we might be questioning everything he does a little bit more than when we're sort of looking through her eyes and being like okay how how are we let's check in with evie and see how she's processing all of this which is also why i agree it would be nice for her to be more upset about all the kidnapping that happens (laughs) (laughs) all the kidnapping yeah so basically walk the line very carefully but your character's not you and don't be afraid to take them in extreme places in order to explore the theme it doesn't mean we think that you as the writer are saying everything my character is doing is something i'm saying is you know go try this at home well and you're really onto something there bry in terms of have some have an outside angle on what that character is doing right right so that's i feel like just a really basic lesson where like we have to have somebody to sympathize with that's a little bit less complex in their morality um just because we got to know what to feel when we're watching the movie um if it were the central character i don't know something like natural born killers comes to mind that's like much harder to watch for a variety of reasons but like (laughs) but yeah it's it's a little bit more difficult when you don't have an outside angle 
on on the extremity mm-hmm. that is being like portrayed and so i i think that that's like just a smart screenwriting lesson yeah. for sure well it's interesting too to think about just like what alan moore is known for and you think about the watchman Absolutely. characters you know yeah you, you can't really feel good about anybody it's they're very uneasy protagonists uh in in his work where it's like they mm-hmm. they do have a, maybe an ideology they take way too far and they're Maybe maybe also doing heroic things, but you never can really feel comfortable with them or like you're really 100% on their side mm-hmm. because their actions aren't that in that black and white good guy, yeah. bad guy territory. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I feel like I would just underscore what you were saying, Trisha, that like I think for it to feel uneasy, for it to feel complex, like you're saying, Brian, for it to be wrestling with a thing, I think you do need some characters that are providing a a more familiar point of reference yeah yeah so that it's right. not simply otherwise it can feel like the creator is saying this is awesome right. do this yeah right, right. exactly <laughs> right <clears throat> the joker why don't we go around and say <laughs> what we've been uh watching this week <laughs> brian do you want to start us off uh sure um as i mentioned i know this is coming out uh later than october i can't remember what the date is but the uh as i mentioned on our patreon episode on the thing my girlfriend and i are watching 31 horror movies in october and two of them that we have loved are happy death day and the sequel happy death day to you which i think are poorly titled movies because as soon as i saw those (laughs) titles i was just like i'm never gonna watch these the sequel is happy death day number two letter u i was just like never never will watch this Stop um, it. <laughs> but then I was looking up like, you know, best movies of the decade and stuff. And, it, and I saw it a few times and I thought, OK, let's give it a shot. And it's they're both so much fun. They're basically Groundhog Day meets Scream, like a Groundhog Day slasher. Uh, that's like a time loop slasher with a self-aware kind of comedy vibe, but also has like heart. Like it kind of takes itself seriously enough, but it's basically a movie that you're supposed to watch and have a good time with. Not actually scary. So if you're not into scary movies, you could totally watch this. Basically, Jessica Roth, who is awesome. She plays a snotty sorority girl who gets killed and keeps waking up the same morning and then has to sort of like solve her her own murder, basically. Uh, And then every time she tries something differently, she ends up, you know, it still happens. Her performance is awesome because she has this huge character arc, but she also stops at all these like different places along the way. That's like a lot of fun. So she just has a ton of work to do in this movie and she just nails it. And uh, and then we went to the sequel, not knowing what it was going to be. And within 20 minutes, we're like, oh, yes, that's brilliant. This is awesome. <laughs> like the cool thing is, like, if you've seen Groundhog Day uh, or, you know, even Edge of Tomorrow, Russian Doll, whatever, you start to go, oh, OK, now we're at this point. So now that this thing has happened, mm-hmm. now this thing can happen. And then the movie's like, but what if this thing happened instead? And you're like, oh, crap, I have no idea what's going to happen now. <laughs> and they keep doing that. And it's just so much fun. So, yeah, despite their not perfect titles happy death day and happy death day to you really fun time i recommend awesome trisha what have you been watching well i was going to recommend the movie on the rocks which is sofia coppola's new movie Mm -hmm. uh which dropped on apple tv this week uh starring rashida jones and bill murray and i watched it really enjoyed it have lots of thoughts but i realized that our listeners it's not going to help them probably for whatever they're going through when this comes out so, um, <laughs> listen, I love you guys. I'm so, I, I'm thinking of you in the future. I'm thinking of all of us, uh, a week from now. Um, 
So what I'm going to recommend instead is something that I've been watching just during this time generally, which is a, a lovely British show called The Repair Shop. Mm. Um, it's on your Netflix. It is, if you like Antiques Roadshow, it's kind of like that, but it also, so it's basically just like, you know, a documentary style, kind of like Antiques Roadshow, you know, nonfiction show where people bring in broken objects, usually antiques, and other experts fix them. And it's usually like family heirlooms, something that is very important to this person. It's like it's an old doll or it's an old music box um, or an old watch that was their great, great, great grandfather's. And they have different experts in the shop and they fix them. And it's just (laughs) so lovely and wholesome. (laughs) And honestly, I, I can't recommend it more highly. It it's just really moving. It's a reminder, you know, it's just this lovely sort of human thing of like, I got this um, bear when I was six years old, you know, and it's a woman who's 97 now. And she's like, and now he doesn't have eyes and he needs his paws replaced and they they do it. And it's just so beautiful. And that's the entire show. So it's on your Netflix. Godspeed to you all this upcoming <laughs> week. If you need repair shop, it's right there. You can check it out. Maybe everything will be really wonderful and peaceful. Right. And then maybe just, yeah, maybe repair shop. In that case, go check out On the Rocks. It's it's fine. It's like a great New York little little comedy thing. But anyway, Bill Murray is a treasure in it. But also there's Mm. repair shop. As always. Great. Uh, Alex, what about you? I watched uh, The Undoing on HBO, which sounds like the opposite Mm. of Repair Shop. (laughs) 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 Um, As far as like, you know, not feeling great. It's it's, uh, written by David E. Kelly. It's another uh, limited series in the vein of his other uh, miniseries on HBO, uh, Big Little Lies. Uh, So once again, tackling the subject, you know, based on a novel, tackling the subject of privileged people caught up in, you know, murder and intrigue and you know, kind of being exposed for the gross rich people they are. They're always fun to watch these shows because they take place in these, you know, opulent settings and it's Nicole Kidman and, you know, it's just, it's just fun to watch, but it's also, you have this weird feeling where it's like, the show is like critiquing the, like the grotesque wealth inequality and stuff, but also like really enjoying it. And like, everybody's so pretty. And so there's this interesting HBO, like niche, these kind of Mm -hmm. shows Succession's kind of the same way too, you know. It that one's more cruel to its characters than this show is, mm. but it there's this almost like the genre on HBO of like the slick critique of the extreme, you know, wealth inequality. But it's about the wealthy people and their problems. So, yeah, it's I'm gonna keep watching it because it has a good hook at the end and it's a murder mystery and stuff. Uh, but. Uh, if that sounds like your cup of tea, if you like Big Little Lies, it's in that same vein. Different director. I'm not as crazy about the direction in in it, but same writer, same Nicole Kidman. So it's a good time. <laughs> well, I just realized that our our future listeners also have something we don't have, which is The Mandalorian. So oh. you oh, guys wow. are doing fine. There you go. New season <laughs> of The Mandalorian. <laughs> you guys are watching that. Great Galaxy job. Galaxy far, far away. <laughs> yeah. Michael, what are you watching? I recently rewatched The Departed. Hmm. Ooh, and it was fun. It, it, it's kind of funny because it was from this era, also, right? Of yeah, like definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. and like there, there was this kind of like moment. <laughs> Our producer just sent me a message immediately saying, "Are you a cop?" <laughs> <laughs> uh, I definitely 
walked around <laughs> the house for a while saying, I'm not a co-op, okay? Uh, I'm just doing this a terrible Boston accent. Um, but it was really fun. I feel like I enjoyed things that I remember enjoying about it, which is just the kind of uber drama opera of, you know, the bad guys amongst mm-hmm. the good guys and vice versa. And then there's the part where they call each other on the flip phones. Flip phones <laughs> are such a big part of that movie. They really are. And like texting in the pockets. Youngsters yep. don't know that before <laughs> when when cell phones had buttons, you could text without having to look at the screen. Mm-hmm. And some people can do that. But like, you know, it's complicated. But you can feel the buttons. <laughs> right. You could feel the buttons. So you could text someone in your pocket and know what you're saying. Anyway, so like that's a big part of the movie also. Anyway, so it was it was just really fun to revisit. Alec Baldwin is always really, really funny. And I feel like it it might be my favorite uh Leonardo DiCaprio performance hmm. and maybe even Matt Damon. It's up there. I'm with you. Yeah. I loved the departed. It's really fun and and I feel like it's one of the few times I've watched Leo like recently and haven't been like, oh look, Leo's doing things. But I was like, oh this is he's <laughs> playing. I don't know. No, no, like I love Leonardo DiCaprio, no disrespect, but I just have that feeling sometimes when it's like that's Leonardo DiCaprio that just crawled inside of that horse when I'm watching mm. that whatever, or, whatever, or that bear. It's like Tom Cruise. You know, it's like Tom Cruise doing right. a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it also reminded me that I, I have this weird feeling with every Scorsese movie that I've seen where I watch it. I'm excited to buy it. And then some time passes and I'm like, but do I like that? And then more time passes and I'm like, I think I might like that. And then I revisit it and then it's exactly the way I remember. And I just go on the like I do that with Shutter Island. Mm. I do that with the Aviator where I can't figure out like, do I love it or do I not like it? And I just keep watching them in this weird cycle. So <laughs> does The Departed still end with a shot of a rat? Because it does. my, my <laughs> fan edit changed. of that movie is the entire movie, but then not that shot. I like to pretend that it ends on Matt Damon's line where he just goes, okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so great. It's the best. Uh, I'm not a co-op. Cool. <laughs> well, this has been our conversation about V for Vendetta. Thank you, as always, to the listeners for listening. Beyond the Screenplay is produced by Vince Major. Our editor is Eric Schneider. I've been joined today by the Lessons from the Screenplay team, Trisha Arand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Cayeros. I am Michael Tucker, and you can find all of our Twitter handles in the show notes. Feel free to reach out, say hi, let us know what you think about V for Vendetta. We'd love to hear if you're revisiting it, if you can handle it. It's not an easy watch in 2020. Thank you, as always, to the patrons for supporting this show and making it possible. And we will see you in the next episode. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Godspeed, America. Amen. Amen.